0: Today's scripture reading is from the Gospel of John. I'll be reading from chapter six, verses twenty-two through fifty-nine, which is the pericope for this section. Again, that's John six twenty-two through fifty-nine. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find the pew Bible um, under the chair in front of you and turn to page eight thirty-eight. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me yet Should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. This is the word of the Lord. Throughout the public ministry of Jesus, there are many opinions on exactly who people thought this Jesus of Nazareth was. And we know that there was a special conversation between Jesus and his disciples in Mark 8 where the apostle confesses that Jesus Is the Christ. But today, and intermittently later on, I'm going to be going through the I am sayings of Jesus, where Jesus, our Savior, he himself announces and discloses his own understanding of himself as God, including his relationship, saving relationship toward the world. You might be familiar with some of the famous statements um, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine, I am the sheep gate, I am the good shepherd, I am the door, and today's passage, I am the bread of life. And I am the resurrection and the life. Now this phrase, I am, actually is a combination of two Greek words. And those two Greek words are ego and me. They actually translate the same. Ego means I am. It's where we get the word ego. And emi also is translated I am. So when you have ego emi, it's kind of redundant, repetitive, almost like stuttering, I am, I am, but it's emphatic. But in order to understand this usage, we actually have to go back to the Old Testament of the Greek, what you call Septuagint. When translators came to Exodus 3.14 and looked at I am who I am in Hebrew, the words that they used to translate the divine name of God was through ego emi." So when Jesus calls himself I am, the bread of life, he's clearly recognizing his divinity, referring back. Exodus 3. These seven I am statements, taking the name of God, and like today, the bread of life, the metaphors that he uses to explain his work are the things that we'll go through. When we come to chapter 6 of Gospel of John, the passage that we read, it's the day after Jesus fed the 5,000. So that 5,000 probably means anything around 20,000, including children and women. And this is what Jesus did miraculously with five loaves and two fish. Um, People were so ecstatic with the miraculous sign. They took Jesus by force and tried to make him king. Not because they recognized that he was the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, but because they loved the fact that he filled their bellies. Now, publicly, this sign of feeding um, that Jesus performed was so that the readers of the scripture may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is what the apostle John writes at the end of the gospel. And there are other signs besides the one that we, are, we just read There's a turning of water to wine, there's a a lot of healing signs, whether it's a nobleman's son or the lame man or the blind man. And today's case referencing right after the feeding of the multitudes from the beginning of chapter 6 to eventual resurrection of Lazarus. But the problem was that people didn't see the sign the way it was supposed to be recognized. They were fixed on the product of the miracle, not the person that it was pointing to. And whenever signs were performed, there were always people who didn't believe. And there were people who did believe. After feeding these masses, recognizing what the masses wanted to do, what did Jesus do in response? In verse 15 of chapter 6, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Essentially, after this, Jesus sends the disciples on a boat across the sea, heading back to Capernaum. And crowds are waiting. And disciples are the ones getting on the boat. And they're sent back. And on the way back, they're caught in a storm And after Jesus' solitary time, he walks toward them. On the sea, he calms a storm. And by the time we come to today's passage, all this teaching, interaction, dialogue between Jesus and the people who are asking, this event is actually happening in the synagogue in Capernaum. So you have the masses who are being fed, To many who try to follow him, and the few who manage to follow him find him and join him at the synagogue. Now, bread and fish were the staple diet of the Palestinians in Jesus' time. Rice and fish for some of us, fish and chips for some others. Or today, maybe those who love burgers, you have buns and meat. For sandwich lovers, bread and meat. Today, I want to look at this passage with the structure of a sandwich. You have the top and bottom part of the bread where Jesus is talking about the bread of life. and the middle, the meat is referring to the sovereign grace of God. So the top bun and the bottom bun or the two slices of bread referring to Jesus' discourse on the bread of life Basically, verses 22 through 35 is the top. The bottom will be 48 through 59. And the middle, the meat, um, covers verse 36 through 47. Again, highlighting the sovereign grace of God. So let's start with the top bun, the bread of life when Jesus is. So when Jesus shows up in today's passage, the the people want to know, how did you get here? Jesus doesn't actually answer how he got there. Part of me wished that he had told them, I walked here on water. But he knew what was on their mind, what they were preoccupied with. And to emphasize, and there are a few, not a few, quite a lot of emphasis, truly, truly, amen, amen. It's like, verily, verily, pay attention. And Jesus is saying, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. This is in verse 26. See, they miss the significance of the sign. He's confronting the Galileans and their tendency, their proclivity to be just materialistic, satisfied in filling up their bellies. They're obsessed with the material world, and they can't see the true spiritual blessing that God is offering them through his son, Jesus Christ. God is offering this food that endures to eternal life, the gift of the Son of Man that God the Father affirms with the seal of approval. Yet, they have no awareness of this spiritual, higher, deeper yearnings and needs of our hearts. All that they want, not unlike today, full stomachs, and perhaps a political messiah. Not much has changed. There are plenty of people who are just interested in material bread. Bread that will perish. Bread that will eventually run out. And that's all they're, they're stick, stuck on thinking, consumed by. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, The great tragedy of the world is that though it gives itself to seek for happiness, it never seems to be able to find it. We're not to hunger and thirst after blessedness. We're not to hunger and thirst after happiness. But that is what most people are doing. We put happiness and blessedness as the one thing that we desire, and thus, we always miss. It always eludes us. According to the scriptures, happiness is never something that we should seek directly. It is always something that results from seeking something else. And he continues, They alone are truly happy who are seeking to be righteous. After all, we are to seek his righteousness and his kingdom. And put happiness in the place of righteousness, you will never get it. We need to recognize that all excitement about Jesus isn't necessarily truly spiritual in character. People are fascinated by spectacles, blinded to the truth and to the reality of the person of Jesus Christ. Now remember, this setting is different than the feeding. Feeding happened outside to the masses. This dialogue is happening in a synagogue, in a house of worship much smaller, perhaps not different than a size like this, maybe even smaller. But you see, they had a good meal, and that's all they wanted. They want to be kept continually. But to this, Jesus responds by saying, he wants them to work for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Jesus knew he could end world hunger. He could restore peace. He could ensure life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. But even if he did all that, he still would not have dealt with the real human problem. a couple of chapters before in John chapter 4, the famous encounter with Jesus at the well with the Samaritan woman. The woman is just fixated on the physical water and can't imagine something deeper. And here, the masses and the disciples here at the synagogue, disciples at large, not just the 12, are just stuck on the physical bread Now, this doesn't mean that we don't bring we don't work um, or buy bread to feed our family. We ought to and we should. And then it's natural for people to have earthly needs met. And Bible never condemns such a thing, but it has to be in a proper place and proper place and priority. Because God does promise that he will take care of those who trust him and love him. But there's a difference between a simple concern for physical well-being versus an obsession, compulsion that prioritizes materialistic desires over spiritual priorities. So we are to go to work, but not dominated or enslaved by the desire for bread that perishes, but knowing Christ, what he has done, we work, we go to work, knowing him, trusting him, and above all, treasuring him. Jesus told them not to work for food that perishes, but work for food that endures to eternal life. Um, And promptly, the crowd responds, like, what must we do to be doing this work? I mean, it's a natural question, right? So how does one work for food that endures to eternal life? And Jesus' answer is pretty amazing. He shifts from doing work that endures by saying it's about believing. And in verse 29, perhaps one of the greatest evangelistic texts of all time, Jesus responds by saying, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. You know, pagan gods, not just of Jesus' time, but throughout world history, they all had their needs. Um, But especially in the Greco-Roman religious system, it was a relationship of reciprocity, a -a tit-for-tat arrangement. You scratch your God's back, and the God's will scratch yours. And here, Jesus describing the work of God as believing is intentionally contrasting the way people have operated in their religious faith and understanding, doing things for their gods, for something reciprocal, to believing, to trusting. What God demands is that you believe in Jesus, that we trust in Jesus, that we commit our lives to him. Now, this doesn't mean that there's no place for work. Yes, Jesus saves us by faith alone, but that faith that saves leads to work. Good works becomes visible. We see it as a validation of true living faith. J.C. Ryle elaborates by saying, we must read up our Bibles like men digging for treasure, hidden treasures. We must wrestle earnestly in prayer like men contending with a deadly enemy for life. We must take our whole heart to the house of God, worship and hear like those who listen to the reading of a will. We must fight daily against sin, the world, and the devil like those who fight for liberty. This is laboring. This is the secret of getting on about our souls. And this is what happens when we are Born again. We have the adage that you may hear and you might have uttered yourself, seeing is believing. But this unbelieving crowd proves that this adage is not true. And we've seen the same thing happen. Just as the crowd has seen the proof positive of Jesus' deity in his miracle, yet they still don't believe. Israelites in the Old Testament with Moses have done this. Thus, most of them didn't enter the promised land. Jesus' days, he performed miracle after miracle. Few believed, but many did not. And today, it's not any different. Jesus told them to believe, but they asked for more proof. It's like, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Now literally, it's actually saying, what work will you continually perform? Keep doing. How will you keep on feeding us? They forget that the day before, Jesus fed 5,000 men, probably referring to some 20,000 people together with five loaves and two fish, and they still ask for a sign. And they think they know the scripture well. I mean, after all, they're at a synagogue. And they say, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. They not only minimize what Jesus did, and by signing, um, saying this, they're basically saying, well, you know, you gave us one meal. It was a nice meal, a great meal, but you know what? Moses fed millions for years in the wilderness. Top that. And here they're trying to bribe God into being this kind of a benefactor, expecting here, Jesus, to feed their wants and desires, supplying their wants. But Jesus won't play that game. They think inciting Scripture kind of they knew the Bible, but Jesus only reveals that they really didn't know Scripture because Actually, Moses didn't bring the bread. He wasn't the source at all. The Father was a source. Get it straight, people. Moses didn't give you the bread. Actually, in Exodus 16, 15, uh, reads, it is the bread which the Lord has given, the bread which the Lord has given. Moses simply helped them to receive it. God was a source. And as here Jesus says in verse 32, pay attention, people, truly, truly. I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread out of heaven. It was the Heavenly Father who gave the physical bread, and now the Heavenly Father offers true bread. It's not what is a true bread. It's the who is a true bread. Jesus compares and contrasts the life that results from manna and life that results from this true bread from heaven. Moses allowed the Israelites to receive manna for 40 years. But the bread from heaven that Jesus speaks of will sustain forever. Jesus is the true bread that the Father gives And this kind of shows the relationship between the Old Testament signs like manna and the New Testament reality in Christ. It's a symbol, the type of Christ. Just as the miracles here are signs pointing to the reality of Jesus himself. The hasty question request by the people, Lord, give us this bread always. Jesus' response, the famous of the great I am statement, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. It's kind of similar to the woman at the well. She's desperate. She asks, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And here, verse 34, give us this bread always. Be like Moses who gave bread every day. Give us continually. They still just want the bread. But Jesus isn't talking about physical bread, but he's talking about himself being the bread of life. He who gives God's life to us, God's manna, God's bread. I think it's interesting to point out uh, when um, the New Testament talks about life, in English language, life is just one word, but like many other uh, words that we have studied, um, the word life in Greek has at least two forms, bios and zoe, you probably heard of both words, um, bios, where we get the word biology, and zoe, where we eventually get the word study of zoo, zoology. But in New Testament, um, bios is referring to biological, physical life, and zoe is referring to quality of life, even spiritual life. And here it's referring to using the word zoe. Um, Jesus is answering, I am, the divine name, the bread of life, bread that feeds, sustains, satisfies that deep longing that only God himself can satisfy. All other breads, whether you eat like something like manna or as great as the burgers and sandwiches that we enjoy or fish and rice, rice and chips, uh, fish and chips, whatever, Eventually, we'll hunger again, and it will all lead to death. I mean, we live in a day and time, perhaps more um, extreme during the COVID. Our desire and attempt for material, physical, or spiritual relief or satisfaction or satiation has skyrocketed because there's an emptiness that only God can fill in the person of Jesus Christ, but people can't recognize that. So they seek those things out in all the wrong places. And here, Jesus' invitation reveals just wonderful power in only what he can do. But the question is, do you have that spiritual hunger? That hunger, that thirst is only something that Jesus can satisfy. That God-shaped vacuum is only that which Jesus can fill. And this is where prosperity gospel gets it so wrong. They just emphasize, come to God and get stuff. But Jesus is saying, it's not stuff that you really need. Stuff can't save you. Sure, you might need stuff here and there. But only he can fully satisfy you and save you and save me. God is not a means to an end, but God is the end himself. I want to get to the meat. So that's kind of like the top patty. The meat, verses 36 through 47. And Jesus begins verse 36 by saying, But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. Um, These people have seen Jesus, they have seen the signs, yet They haven't seen the signs the way they were supposed to see them. The signs have not signified for them Christ in his original intention. And verse 36 is probably one of the most uh, powerful verse. One of the most important single verses in Scripture. And Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Jesus is not devastated by the rejection of the unbelieving. He kind of expects it. He knows that eventually the rejection will lead to him on the cross. But at the end, he knows that the Lord God is sovereign. His Father, his will will be done. You see, the majority of Christians today, or many at least, um, are what we call semi-Pelagian. So Jesus said this, all that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father gives me will come to me. If you're a semi-Pelagian, you're thinking this way. Actually, you mean all that who comes to me, the Father will give to me, the, the reverse. The Pelagian, semi-Pelagian are Aminians who emphasize or highlight our place in coming and deciding. Father recognizes our decision and gives us the gift. But this isn't what Jesus teaches here. So I want to get to the meat of the matter and go through a couple of points. The first one is, as we look at the first part of verse 36, all that the Father gives me will come to me. God gives his chosen ones to Jesus. We're talking about unconditional election here. That apart from anything Remotely commendable in ourselves, a people have been chosen by God to come to Jesus. These are the elect. R.C. Ryle comments, The Father from all eternity has given to the Son a people to be his own peculiar people. The saints are given to Christ by the Father as a flock, which Christ undertakes to save completely and to present complete at the last day. When you skip to verse 44, another powerful verse that kind of highlights this whole thing on the sovereignty of God, especially in this unconditional election, is when Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him this is a what you call a universal negative um, proposition no one, no person without exception not a single soul and then adds the word can so it has to do with ability so that essentially saying no one is able to come to Christ unless the Father draws him. no human being is capable. Our moral inability, our fallen condition, prevents us from doing anything in coming to Jesus. In the Protestant church, there there are tensions in the way they understand the word draw. Some people um, would look at the word draw and kind of explicate it by thinking of the way flies are drawn from Honey. Like, you'll woo them, entice them. But the Greek word actually here, translated, draw, is much stronger. It means to compel. Jesus wasn't saying, oh, no one will come to me unless the Father woos them to me. No. No one can come to him unless the Father compels them. Same Greek word is used in Acts when Paul is seized and dragged out of the temple at Jerusalem. The Jews who dragged him out, they weren't trying to woo him out, they were literally dragging him out, compelling, forcing. During the Reformation time, um, there was a classic confrontation debate between two scholars. Erasmus of Rotterdam, um, amazing scholar, he translated. New Testament to Greek, which Luther later on actually used to study and learned a lot and probably, um, you know, played a huge part. But the debate was on the question of, the free, of free will. Erasmus defended free will, partly by actually uh, appealing to verse 44 here. And he said that God draws people in the same way that a donkey's owner holds out a carrot and would woo the donkey to move. Um, he said that sin has weakened man. Though sin has weakened man, it has not made him utterly incapable of meritorious action. There is, he affirms, a power of the human will by which man can apply himself to those things that lead to salvation. That man actually plays a part, so he argues. Luther's response in one of the famous classics that if you haven't read, you should, The Bondage of the Will, He doesn't deny that man has a will or man makes choices, but he does deny that sinful man does so freely. Luther, for him, writes, whether sinners are wholly helpless in their sin and whether God is to be thought thought of as saving them by free, unconditional, invincible grace, whether in the last analysis... Christianity is a religion of utter reliance on God for salvation and all things necessary to it. Either that or self-reliance and self-effort. Erasmus understood destroying as a simple outward persuasion, like the way he would um, analyze, um, use the analogy of a a donkey being prompted, enticed with carrots and using that kind of analogy to win over men's free will. But Luther wisely points out, when referring to John 6, points out that Jesus employed the most potent persuasions, as we have been reading here, but got nowhere with his Jewish hearers. The ungodly does not come, Luther writes, Even when he hears the word, unless the Father draws and teaches him inwardly, which he does by shedding abroad his spirit. Brothers and sisters, the Bible teaches us that mankind is not merely sick and weak, but we're dead. We're dead in our trespasses and sin. And spiritually speaking, unbelievers are no more able to come to Christ than a dead man is able to walk, rise and walk as we see in Lazarus when Jesus rose him, raised him from the dead. The word that we see in John 6:44 we eventually see the same word used in other parts of scripture in John 21 for hauling and dragging a net full of fish to the shore. Or Acts 16, when Paul and Silas are dragged before civil authorities. Or John 18, when Peter draws his sword from his scabbard, his case. And all these show the idea of resistance that is overcome by superior force. Mankind and sin is resistant to God unless overcome by God's inward working. He cannot, he will not come to Christ by himself. Martin Lloyd-Jones defines a Christian this way when he was studying through Romans 3. He says, a Christian is a man or woman whose mouth Has been shut. Isn't that a startling definition of a Christian? A Christian is a man or woman whose mouth has been shut. There is within each one of us a gravitational pull toward self justification. And Jesus is saying to these spectators of his miracles, unless my Father draws you, you can have nothing with me. We have nothing to boast because. We play no part in being brought to Christ. Second part, second part of the, the meat, going back again to verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me here. Because God gives them to Jesus, because the Father gives them to Jesus, they come to Jesus. They believe on Jesus. Because you know what? Those whom the Father gives, come. He guarantees their coming. For those of us who have come to Christ, it's because God brought you. When you believed, it's because God opened our eyes. When Jesus was understandable, it's because He did it. This irresistible grace reminds us and teaches us that all the elect that God chose, that God called, will come to him in saving faith. This irresistible grace is a teaching that all those whom God has chosen will inevitably come to faith in the Lord Jesus. It's the effectual working of God's grace, or effectual or effective. God makes it happen. C.S. Lewis was once interviewed by an American Christian journalist who was uh, trying to write about well-known people and their conversion to Christianity. He was kind of being urged to kind of talk about his decision. It's like how he became Christ, how he made a decision to follow. But Lewis refused to put it on those terms because he recognized that he didn't make a decision. In fact, he would say that God had closed in on him and he couldn't escape. He used this phrase, I was decided upon. And in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, he uses this phrase, his compulsion is our liberation. The third part of the meat, I guess you can think of like, I don't know, five patties, kind of heart attack about to happen. But the third part um, those who are given to Jesus and come to Jesus are eternally kept by Jesus, none is lost. Um, here we're um, learning about the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. The son will never lose his or reject his. He's the one who will preserve. Jesus will never cast out anyone who truly comes to him in faith. And the emphatic double negative, never, no never, is intended for those of us who are weak to comfort, to comfort us to trust that he will never cast his out. In the fourth patty, he will raise us from the dead on the last day. I mean, we recite the resurrection weekly. In verse 39 and 40, Jesus speaks, this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And everyone who looks on the Son believes in him, should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Now all of these foundational teaching, reform teaching, are grounded in God's sovereign work. God's giving, the Father's giving, our coming, Christ's keeping, and the raising. It's all showing the will of God being fulfilled. What a beautiful, beautiful Teaching that we get to feast on. Now you might ask, well, how do I know that if I'm among the chosen ones? How how do I know that um, if I have been called, if Christ will actually keep me and eventually raise me? Well, Jesus answers here in verse thirty-five, and it's this. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You have this combination of two statements, coming and believing. Coming to him and believing him are what it's going to show us. We come to Jesus by believing him, trusting in him. And if you believe in Jesus, then you are his and he will keep you And raise you. If you believe in Jesus, it is a sign that God the Father has drawn you. So believe in Jesus and be assured that God has drawn you to him. The teaching of election is meant for an encouragement for Christians that you are secure. It's not for non Christians, actually. If you' are not a believer then your response today should be to believe in Jesus because God's Word promised us if you believe in Jesus you will be saved. if you come like if you come to him like this, you have give, you have been given to the son, given by the Father to the Son then you will be kept and you will be raised on the last day. What amazing news and and this should keep us humble. This should fill our hearts with thankfulness. This should give us an assurance and give us hope in trusting God's sovereignty as we give glory to God and God alone. The bottom bread, the bottom piece, um, when Jesus responds, the verb tenses are all in present tense verbs, emphasizing the continual repetition, the need of. It's not an accident. The people who are asking, keep feeding us. Just as Moses kind of led in feeding the Israelites with manna, although it was the father who was feeding, Jesus is kind of saying, you need to keep on feeding on me. The faith here we're talking about is eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Jesus, ultimately pointing to the sacrifice that's going to happen. Jesus hasn't died yet, obviously. He hasn't even had the last supper. But he knows as he himself is recognized as the Lamb of God, as chapters before, he he speaks about being lifted up as a serpent. And as he speaks about the body and the blood, he knows why he came. He knows what he's going to do. And he knows that that's the only way that we can have eternal life. It's not an accident that we seek to regularly partake by coming to the table. Next week, we're going to come to the table because we need to do it regularly. We need to feast on the bread, which represents his body, and the wine, which represents the blood he shed for our forgiveness of sins. How are you going to respond? We are to come to Jesus. We are to believe in Jesus. This believing, referring to eating, taking, receiving, continuously. It's not enough to come and just listen. Remember, this conversation is happening at a synagogue, a house of worship. People are listening. But as I'll show up, many will not believe. And actually, many will walk away. You have to take it and eat it for yourself. Eating requires you to recognize that you are hungry. As you recognize your spiritual hunger, that without Christ, we're condemned in sin. There is no hope in us. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit who makes the heart hungry. For that forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with God. You know, people here will do a lot of things to help you. There's some of you who are here because someone else, and you might be here not for your sake, but for someone else's sake. And those are great things that people love you or you love others that you are here. However, at the end of the day, you have to be the one eating, you have to be the one. Receiving what Christ offers you, himself, his body and blood. has to be personal. J.C. Ryle says, Whenever a man, feeling his own guilt and sinfulness, lays hold on Christ and trusts in the atonement made for him by Christ's death, at once he eats the flesh of the Son of Man and drinks his blood. Brothers and sisters, we started the message today with masses, some probably close to 20,000 people who are excited about this great feeding frenzy. Mere five loaves and two fish, but they wanted to make Jesus king, and Jesus left them because he refused that offer. That's not what he came for. And this conversation, dialogue happening at a synagogue, much fewer people. And when the gospel with the bread of life is presented, and the meat of the gospel is taught, you know what it says in verse 66? After this, many of his disciples, not the crowd, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. These are people who have come, followed him, but they wanted the bread. They didn't want Christ. The disciples here, you have the two, who believed and who didn't believe. After many of the disciples stopped following, Jesus does turn to his disciples and ask, what are you going to do? But Apostle Paul rightly responds by saying, When Jesus asked, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter responds by saying, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. False disciples are attracted by crowds, fascinated by Supernatural, fantastic. Think of only earthly benefits. And worship of God and submission to God is actually not on the radar. The candidates for prosperity gospel or social gospel want Jesus to feed you, fulfill your desires. They want Jesus to give them what they want. They have their list, they have their agendas. You know, a while back, I remember reading a sad story of this mega church in the South who drew like huge crowd by um, doing raffles um, and giving, out, giving away a free house. What a sad way of drawing people. But I also know that good intentions are not always the best. Churches who offer money to their members to invite non believing friends to come to church? What confusing message is that sending? How many people would actually come to worship if Christianity were suddenly made illegal or they faced arrest? That's not so far now. I mean, people have experienced this, especially our neighbors in Canada. or when coming becomes really inconvenient like covid false disciples do not find their satisfaction in the person but in the things that this person offers brothers and sisters why are you here this morning Jesus teaches us that these signs, like many other signs, they're not all recorded in the Bible because there'll be too many, are recorded so that what? You may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the great I am, and that by believing, trusting, you may have life, eternal life in His name. Have you come? Are you believing in him or are you waiting and asking for another sign? Let's pray. Lord we thank you for these amazing amazing truths of election and other truths that reminds us of your sovereignty that we play no part and you receive all the glory. Lord, may your truth encourage us to continue to feast on you, believe you, not just once a week, but daily as we get ready to start Lenten season again. And if there are anyone here who are here for other reasons, but have not placed their trust, belief in you. Lord, would you work in their hearts so that they would believe and taste eternal life that you offer? Christ's name.